And tonight, it's a real pleasure to welcome Dr. Peter Moyle, and he's going to discuss how scarce water resources in California create conflicts between people and wildlife, and how reconciliation ecology can address these problems. Peter Moyle is a distinguished professor emeritus in the Department of Wildlife, Fish, and Conservation Biology from the University of California, Davis, and he is the Associate Director of the Center for Watershed Sciences at the University of California, Davis. He's a remarkable scholar, teacher, and public servant. He's written eight or nine books, almost 200 articles in peer-reviewed journals, and he always is willing to help in solving state problems and national problems, so he gets called on frequently to serve on, to serve on committees, boards, councils, and so on. And he undoubtedly knows more about freshwater and estuarine fishes in California than anyone else. Please join me in welcoming Professor Peter Moyle. Well, thanks, everybody. Uh, it's good to be here. Uh, this is a, a different venue for me. And uh, I hope to introduce you to a part of the world that I've spent a good chunk of my professional life in and with fishes that I find uh, fascinating and because they are really part of California's heritage. So what I'm going to want to talk about is say this title may not be quite accurate, but it's close enough, um, which is Reconciling California's Delta. And how do you get water for both fish and people? Because frankly, we're in a state where our native fishes are competing very directly with us for the, for the limited supplies of water. Okay, uh, like anything, I've been, I've been working in the Bay Delta system in Northern California for about 50 years. And, and that means I've, there's been a lot of students and uh, postdocs and other scientists involved with me, just a few of them up here. I just have to acknowledge them, because this, this, this work is, that I've been doing is not mine alone, it's the work of lots of other people. And I want to start the, in, the introduction by showing you the earliest known satellite photograph of California from 1851, wood, a wood-fired satellite rocket, I would assume. Um, but the thing to notice here is, first off, now notice the, this is supposed to be in the spring of 1851. Notice the major snowpack on the Sierra Nevada, the major, biggest, California's biggest reservoir, the big source of water. Notice also that there's a large lake at, at the bottom of the, um, uh, at the bottom of the Central Valley there, that, and um, a lake that's now gone, it's drained for agriculture. And you notice how green everything is, including especially the, the, the you can see the rivers and the greenery along the um, base of the valley. Uh, so, but I want to focus on this area in red here, which is the, for the place where all this water leaves. And most of this, this photograph here shows you the great central valley of California, one of the really remarkable features on this planet. And all that water that flows in from two major rivers, the Sacramento and San Joaquin rivers, flows out through this very narrow gap. Uh, it's the San Francisco estuary. This is another old map to show you this perhaps a little more clearly. The delta is this area that's up on the top of the square and it's sort of in gray, uh, which is followed below that is Susun Bay and then San Francisco Bay. The water then uh, from these rivers can then flow out to the ocean at that point. 
So this is, a, this is a remarkable feature because so much of the water of the state flows through this one narrow place. And the delta will be the focus of this. This is a freshwater part of the San Francisco estuary. And historically, it was a very different place. Uh, you know, the, the delta was disrupted so quickly, we hardly know what it was like. Very few people actually recorded it because once the gold rush came to California, the delta started to be farmed almost instantly. And uh, it was changed very dramatically by sediment coming down the rivers. But there's a wonderful book by Laura Cunningham on the, uh, her, uh, she's both the artist and a biologist who um, imagines what, the, what it was like. And this gives you, this painting of hers gives you some idea of, of immense marshland filled with wildlife of all sorts. Big grazers, lots of, lots, lots of waterfall, and generally a very rich place for, uh, for people and wildlife. Uh, and of course, the big rivers flowed through it, and these rivers flooded every year. The massive amounts of flooding that took place on the Central Valley were an, almost an annual feature and a very important part of the biology of, these, of the critters who live there. Notice also in this picture, though, that there is a, a Indian village showing. An important thing to recognize is that the Central Valley uh, was always had dense populations of India, Indians in it for thousands of years. And in fact, the delta is a relatively recent feature of the landscape that's caused by sea level rise. So it's less than 10,000 years old. That means people have always been part of the ecology of the delta, even when it was still in quote unquote pristine condition. And of course, this is also a delta that, uh, that had populations of big populations of salmon running up at probably one to two million salmon a year. Each of these fish weighing 20 to 30 pounds, coming up and fertilizing the, uh, the rivers and providing food for people as well as for bears. Think of what Alaska is like today. That was what California was like at that point, point in time. It's a very dynamic system. The, uh, this, this refers to the entire estuary, but especially the delta, the part in the, in the shaded dark in here. Because your fresh water comes down from the Sacramento and San Joaquin rivers. Tidal water comes in through the Golden Gate, and it mixes in between. So you get this um, long zone of where mixed salt water and fresh water mix. And historically in estuaries, those have been the most productive places for fish and for everything else, because that's where the, the water stays and has long residence time, so it has lots of chances to build up large plankton populations. And, but this, it's hard to imagine the scale of these wetlands. The, uh, the, the, the originally regarded mostly as a nuisance, of course, because the early steamboats going from San Francisco to Sacramento for the, for the gold miners could take as long as a week to wind their way through these marshlands. But today, the system looks more like this. This is a typical delta of, uh, of today. It's, it's, it's farmland, very intensely farmed in the, with the waterways confined between levees as, as they flow between the, uh, what were these, these, these fields. Here's the, again, you see the river here at the bottom with the massive levees along the edges that keep the water in the rivers. So again, you've gone from a system that was wet all year round with a big sponge essentially to one in which there's enormous tracts of flat farmland with uh, uh, rivers flowing confined in narrow channels. Uh, parts of the parts of the uh, system are, not, are are or have orchards on them. They have with more, more places with more mineral soils, growing cherries and so forth. Again, notice how straight the rivers are and how completely. Um, 
dedicated the land is to agriculture. Other places are more urbanized, as you see over in the parts of the South Delta. And of course, it's very, still very important for recreation as well. The Delta is a major recreational hub for people, who, especially people who live in that area. But this is an area that most people in California don't know about. They don't, because if you take Highway 5 between driving up to Sacramento from here, if you take Highway 5, you actually drive across part of the Delta, but you probably would not be knowing it when you're doing it. It just looks like farmland. Um, but part, the delta is always fighting back. There's always places in the, there are many places in the delta where the levees have given way and the, the, the farmers have just decided it's not worth fighting anymore and they, they allow the islands to be flooded. Here's an example um, showing you a, the levee stranded out in the middle of a vast open area. Uh, so the, there are changes taking place in this system all the time. And you look at scenes like this, this is one of our sampling sites where you can look Look, look down, it looks pretty natural. It got riparian vegetation, but it's a very narrow band of vegetation. And if you actually look at this, you realize this is a very straight channel. Nature does not like straight lines. This is a, t instead, it prefers curves. Here's what you have is a straight line because this whole thing was dredged into its present configuration. But it's still, although it's still a valuable place for fish. Other places have backwaters like this. Uh, this is more in the South Delta where, where bass fishing is predominant. It looks pretty good, but this is a totally artificial system. And this is this map perhaps gives you gives you a better idea of what's going on. Um, everything that's white in this map is land that's subsided because of agriculture, so it's at least nine feet below sea level. The upper part of the delta there, and you also darker colors. That's all land that's not subsided. That's the the best places for the habitat of for various fishes and so forth. But all that white is subsided land. And think of the fact that sea level is rising. And it's, you already have vast areas of, of the delta, hundreds of square miles, essentially, that are below sea level. That's a recipe for major change in the future. I also want you to notice that as you go down this narrow neck of the delta with a narrow, where the San Joaquin and the Sacramento Rivers comes together, you see this other place, which is Susun Marsh, which is a very important spot for native fish. But of course, the delta is also, this delta is not only heavily altered itself, but it's the heart of California's water supply system. Half of all the water that we use in California flows through the delta. And this is what, and you have these canals and, and aqueducts that go all over the state, creating what Nora suddenly is called the hydraulic society. We are truly a hydraulic society. We depend on bringing water from the north and distributing it throughout the rest of the state. Well, this, I have to talk about fish. That's my focus of my own research and what I've been working with for years, and that's what I wanted to talk about now to put this, put this all into perspective. Uh, and my, my, one of my principal research programs is Susie Marsh, which has been going on since January of 1980. Uh, and we've been sampling about 20 different locations in the marsh for that monthly for that period of time. So we have a huge data set. And just by going out and doing this regular kind of sampling, you get a much better feel for what the fish are doing. Um, and I want to start out with the fish showing you two species that no longer exist in the delta. This is the thick-tailed chub and the Sacramento perch. The thick-tailed chub is totally extinct. The Sacramento perch is just extirpated. It's a fairly rare fish, but I have a bunch in ponds and at UC Davis, for example. When you look in Indian bins, the waste pit bins of the uh, Indians who lived in there in the Delta region, these are the two most abundant fish in the middens. They were a major source of food 
and now they're gone, which tells you something about how much the system has changed. But this is the species that most people hear about when they hear about the delta at all. This is the delta smelt. Uh, even our present, current president has insulted this fish. Um, it's a tiny little guy, and it, it, it's an endemic species. It occurs only in the delta. Its principal habitat is the delta. So anything you do to the delta has a direct effect on the fish. And as a matter of fact, this is a species which is most likely to go extinct in the next few years of any species of fish in the system. But there are other species, like this is the tule perch, a uh, beautiful little fish, about six inches long, that's a closest relative of the um, uh, surf perches that you can see here in the aquarium, the surf perch family. All its relatives are marine, but there's this one species that's managed to invade fresh water and doing very well. And the reason for this is that it's a live bear. This, these little females um, look like little footballs when they're ready to give birth. They're in deep cover at that time, and this one that we caught was giving birth. The, the, um, they can have up to 40 young at one time, and these young are, are, are precocial, and the males are actually up and mating, doing formal mating procedures within three months after being born. So it's a very rapid life cycle and a very unusual fish. It's this whole, the only representative of this entire family in freshwater anywhere in the world. Then we have the Sacramento sucker, a rather homely-looking fish, but one that uh, you know, I wanted to know. You notice the fleshy papillose lips on this fish. That's uh, it's a good characteristic, which makes it irresistible to the students who go out with me. Uh, it's almost a requirement to, to to show your affection for this fish. A very important, but historically extremely abundant fish in the system, for both food for the Indians and for um, for wildlife. Uh, then we have this, the, the Sacramento split tail, one of the fish that I've done a lot of work with that I, I find especially attractive. It's a beautiful silvery fish, gets up to a foot or so long. Uh, and it's a, it's a bottom feeder, and it's characteristic of Susan Marsh. It's really abundant in the marsh, but most of all, it's one of these fish that makes a great species for monitoring because it requires the entire delta to really be function properly. This diagram shows you essentially what it does is that it lives most of its life in Susan Marsh but, and in the, in the wetlands of the lower delta, but then it moves upstream to spawn and it spawns on floodplains. It requires flooded lands to spawn on. The young rear on the floodplains for a few weeks, then they bail out and move back down, move back down the river, back into the, <clears throat> into the marshes again. So it goes from these, these muddy areas, or you can see my students sampling the, in the marsh mud, uh, up to these floodplains, including the Yolo Bypass, which is otherwise, when it's not flooded, is agricultural. So a fish that really reflects the complexity of the natural biological systems there. We have other species of fish like the hitch, a native minnow that feeds on plankton. I won't say too much about that. It's increasingly rare. But of course, we have salmon as well. And the salmon that once were in the millions are now in the thousands, they, but they st still require the delta. The adults have to move up through the delta to get down into the, um, get to the rivers they're spawning in. And the juveniles that result from that spawning have to make it down through the delta in order to get out to sea. So they, again, it's enough species that really require the delta to function in order to uh, survive and, and provide for fisheries. 
Then we have interesting issues with non-native species. This is the striped bass. It's a much, if you're up in the, in the Delta area, it's much maligned by water people. I like to blame it for, the cause, for causing the decline of Delta smelt. It's not responsible, but it gets blamed because it's a big predatory fish. Introduced in 1870s, it's now one of the more abundant fish in the Delta. But one of the reasons it's so important is that it has a life cycle that, re that requires an entire functioning estuary to be completed. It spawns in the rivers, it lives in the delta, it lives in, it rears in the delta, and the adults are down in San Francisco Bay. So this is a species which, if we have it around, we have a, a living ecosystem, is that what we want? So it's a very important species. And it also is a reflection of the nature of the fish fauna of this estuary. Because this, this is a um, diagram that shows you the species uh, arrayed according to their general habitat, some of the, some of the common species in the delta. You notice a couple of species like the delta smelt are up near the surface. There's the sticklebacks and so forth over near the, on, the, uh, on the edge habitats. And in midwater we have species like the striped bass uh, and the split tail. And then we have a whole series of species that live on the bottoms, bottom of the, of the uh, uh, on the muddy bottoms for feeding on invertebrates of various sorts. There are over 50 species of fish that occur in the delta, um, and 15 of these are consistently abundant, and about, it's about a 50-50 mixture of native and non-native species. Because what you see, while, that, while everything labeled with an A is a non-native species, an alien species, yet if you were coming to this system as a biologist for the first time, not knowing anything about the origin of these fish, you would think this was a bitch of species that evolved together because they're so different morphologically from one another, they look, and they behave so differently. So this is what you can call a novel ecosystem because we got fish from all over the world coming together to work together. And it's more than just fish, too. For example, this is a striped bass, so stomach we pumped. And what you see, that mess you see there is actually uh, several, 100 or more stickleback fish, small little fish that are adult fish it was feeding on. And these sticklebacks are native, the striped bass is not native. The sticklebacks, in turn, were feeding on a non-native copepod, a non-native invertebrate. So the whole food webs we have out there are mixtures of native and non-native species at all different levels. So it's really quite a remarkable system. And these, these species from all over the world are, are figuring out how to get along with each other. Either they have to go extinct. But let me talk now about some of the realities of the delta that support this really unusual fish fauna out there, this mixture of endemic species that occur no place else and non-native fishes from all over the world. And this is what I used to call a foundation for reconciliation ecology approach to management. Reconciliation is such a great word, and I'll get to that later. Uh, well, first, first reality is, is that the status quo is not working for fish. When you see diagrams like this, like this is the status of delta smelt. When I started working in the estuary in the 1970s, uh, it was one of the most abundant fish out there. Now it's in all the various sampling programs and hundreds of trawls aimed at catching, specifically catching smelt, they only caught two of them. So it's a species which is on the verge of extinction. And other species are tracking that delta smelt as well. It just happens to be the most dramatic example. So this, I want you to keep in mind that the present delta as an ecosystem is not working for native fish and for most of the fishes that we really want. And the other thing you notice, these are, these are a list of other species that are formally listed by the state and federal governments as threatened or endangered that also depend on the delta. So the delta smell is not alone. Well, the second reality is 
that they, we can't go back again. We can't restore the, to the, the, we can't restore the historic delta. It's just too, too altered from what it was historically. Um, yeah, and uh, this Restore the Delta is an organization that's a major lobbying group for protecting the delta, but I'm not quite certain what they want to restore. Because um, this is what you see. The, the diagram on, on, the, on my left, you're, you're right, um, is, shows the, what the channels were like in the historic delta. Notice this very complex system of, of channels that drained the very major marshlands. Whereas the diagram showing today shows a much more simplified system where most of the delta land is now in farms that are large farm fields and the, the, the drainage channels are just a few large channels between levees. So it's a system, you can't reverse this. This is, especially with, so, since so much of the delta is subsided as well, well below sea level. Now, the, the third reality is, is what I was talking about earlier with these fish, is that the delta, delta is a novel ecosystem. The fish are just, a demo, just the best understood example of why it is a novel ecosystem with this major, with this combination of native and non-native species in a highly altered environment. But that means it's irreversibly altered, the native and non-native species, and also it means people are part of the ecosystem. We're in charge. We're part of this ecosystem, and we're in charge of it. We, we got to realize that if we really want to make, make a difference here. And also there's a corollary to this, which is that there will always be a delta ecosystem. You hear a lot of story people complaining that if we do this, one, one action or another, the delta ecosystem will collapse. It won't collapse, it'll just change. It's a very rich environment for fish and other native critters, and native and non-native critters. So we'll just have a different system. It just may not be one we like. So this is where our responsibility comes in, is how much do we want to direct our attention towards creating an ecosystem that has characteristics that we want it to have. Another reality is the delta will change. It's going to change dramatically in, the, in the, sometime in the next 50 to 100 years, if not before. If the levees are very weak. They're often made of the original peat materials that were dredged out of the islands. Uh, there's, we, have, we have floods coming on, the sea level is rising, the tide, we have major tides that are rising. We have earthquakes, the islands are subsided. This is all a recipe for major change in the system, major physical change in the system, which will make it a very different place for fish and other critters. This, this picture here, for example, shows you a levee break that took place on a nice summer day. Um, apparently a beaver burrowed through the levee and the water followed the beaver. Uh, so these are the kind of things, we just are unpredictable events. It's very hard to take, it, take into account. And of course, the other, the major change that's, that's taking place also, but on a much more gradual basis, uh, is, is climate change. That is definitely affecting the system. Where it means where the floods that were coming anyway are going to be bigger. The, the droughts are going to be longer. The temperatures of the water are going to be higher because air temperatures will be higher. Sea level rising, that's a direct result of climate change. And that means we'll get we'll have more invasive species because a lot of these invasive species are favored uh, by the conditions created by climate change. I show this picture on the bottom, shows you the uh, recent event of king tide in uh, 2015 that went over levees for the first time. Again, there's already sea levels rising enough to have direct impacts. On, on our environments. And this diagram shows you a study that I did on evaluating using a whole series of different metrics, the vulnerability to climate change of delta fishes 
evaluating 25 alien species and 20 native species. And what you see here is the, the, the non-native species are in black, the native species are in white, and the um, uh, vulnerability to climate change, that is the probability of them going extinct, increases as you go to the, uh, on, to the high side of the graph here. And what you see, of course, is that the native species are much more vulnerable to climate change than the non-natives. That it means we're going to lose a lot of these native species if present trends continues, and the non-native species will become even more abundant. And these invasive species can actually cause major damage just on their own once they get it. And this is why it's also so important to prevent new invasions if we possibly can. These are two species, the overbite clam and the Brazilian waterweed, that now dominate parts of the delta. The overbite clam has only invaded since the 1980s. It now, in places, there's 10 to 30,000 of these little clams per square meter on the bottom. They're sucking at most of the zooplankton uh, that the delta smelt, for example, need. Um, and the Brazilian waterweed is clogging canals and creating great habitat for uh, largemouth bass and sunfish and catfish. So we have had lots of experience with invasive species coming in and changing the system and making it very difficult to get rid of them. Once they're here, they're just about impossible to do much with. Well, what you hear more, perhaps more often is that, is that exports are a problem for fish. The ex water we export from the delta that I mentioned earlier because half the water, but half the water is diverted before it even reaches the delta, it's diverted upstream. Uh, but it does mean overall there's less water in the system for the fish, that the natural variability in flows really does not exist anymore because we regulate so much by dams. You know, what, what this is a, a slide showing you exports from the south delta. There are two major pumps that are in the south end of the, of the delta. And these were well, the state water project pumps and these, uh, the Central Valley project, the federal pumps. These are the pumps that send the water down the California aqueduct and the private Fry and Kern Canal to cities in the south and to farmland uh, in the San Joaquin Valley. <clears throat> they also send a lot of water to the Bay Area. And what this diagram shows is the relative importance of those two pump, massive pumping stations. It's hard to express how big those pumping stations are. These pumps are huge. When you go down there, you just can't help but be impressed just by their sheer size and the volume of water they're, they're moving. But what you see that since the 1970s, the amount of water being exported has steadily increased, except during drought years. But what you'll notice, the gray bars going across this graph are show drought years. And what you see that as well, immediately following the drought, pumping cranks up again. We, never, we haven't seemed to learn very much from our droughts that we're going to have another drought coming up. So this is, a, this is a, an interesting problem we face. That this obviously affects the fish because you're, they're getting, most of this water is leaving the system. But exports are not the only problem. There's a whole array of other things that are affecting individual fish, from con contaminants, uh, invasive species, habitat loss, and so forth. So uh, the, the, when you hear arguments that it's ex exports are the major cause of the, of the delta, they are a major cause, but they're only one of a number. And that's what makes this system so complex, makes it so hard to deal with when you're trying to do restoration. The other reality is that the delta is a freshwater system, and it's managed that way. It's deliberately managed that way. Uh, and often the, the delta smelts blame for this, that too much water is going through the delta to keep it fresh, and that water is all being wasted because it goes out to sea, um, which is not true. But here's the, this, is this delta, we see this rich farmland out there. 
is, 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 requires fresh water to do that. And this is what allows the Delta to be a freshwater system in, during the summer months when it might have historically been much a little more brackish. Well, releases from dams. We release a lot of water from our dams in order to maintain the Delta as a freshwater system. Um, and we have to do this, though, ironically, to keep those exports up. Because if, 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 the, if we, we, you know, we, for exports, you have to move the water across the Delta from the Sacramento River to those big pumps. And that means somehow you can't allow salinity to intrude from the, from the tidal areas downstream. You have to allow the fresh water. And that means you need to, more fresh water coming down the rivers to keep the salinity at bay, to keep it from getting down into the intakes of those big pumps that send water south to, for farming and, and cities. So we're sort of stuck with this kind of a problem here of having the Delta as a freshwater system, even though it's, it's very expensive. And, and this shows you what these exports do. You know, roughly 33% of the water that from the, in the Bay Area comes from the Delta. Uh, Southern California is about 30% as well. Some regions, it's, uh, regions is up to 100% of the water comes from the Delta. So Delta water is really important for the economy of the state. Uh, and nobody wants to stop exporting that water. Uh, well, most people don't anyway. Um, but we also have to have a freshwater delta because of freshwater agriculture, of, of delta agriculture. The delta agriculture is some of the oldest farmland in California. And the people who farm that land have very old water rights. Uh, it basically, by California law, is practically sacred water rights. So there, there is a basic requirement to maintain the freshwater channels flowing through the delta in order to keep farming going. Uh, you could argue some that, that that may not be the best use of the water, but the reality is that's the present system. But it, does this freshwater help the fish? Actually, it does. That's one of the good advantages of having uh, a, a um, freshwater required in the system for export and for farming, is that it actually provides good habitat for a lot of these fish that like the brackish water. Uh, but very little of this water is actually exported specifically, is actually left in the system specifically for fish. They take advantage of the water that's there. But they get blamed for the, all the problems anyway. That's just the way it goes. So the take-home messages here I want to leave you with for this first part of the talk is that the status quo is not working for native fish. We need to fix the delta, essentially, if you really want to have these native fishes around. There are big changes ahead for the delta, whether we like it or not. But water is going to continue to be exported. The reality is people, there are a lot of people in the state, a lot of big demands for water. That's going to continue. That's not going to go away. But that, that, of course, means there's no magic bullet solutions. No one thing's going to solve all the problems. So what do we do? That's the big question. What do we do? And this is where I'd like to talk about reconciliation ecology. But this is the idea that you can integrate desirable species of animals and plants into human-dominated landscapes. Um, you have to work with these novel ecosystems, essentially. We have to realize that we, we are part of the ecosystems, we're in charge of the systems, and we can direct the way we want these systems to what these systems could look like, at least to a certain extent. We are limited somewhat by the non-native species. But this means you have to focus on natural, natural processes, like trying to create natural flow regimes where you can through, through delta uh, regions. And it also means you have to admit that we're a highly technological culture and that there's a lot of infrastructure involved, building gates and, and uh, so forth to direct the water to go where we want it to go. Because if we can't 
take huge amounts of water out for fish, you gotta find a way to use the water we have available in the most efficient manner. Um, and then a good example of, the, of what I'm talking about here is what is called the North Delta Habitat Arc. If you're going to invest money in trying to restore fish habitat in the delta, you don't put your money over in the South Delta, which is highly altered, the most highly degraded and altered part, and so, where so much of it is below sea level. Instead, you focus on the places that where you can get the most bang for your buck. And this happens to be this area that's in green here, which that we call the North Delta Habitat Arc. It starts in the Yellow Bypass, which is a a farming, uh, a flood bypass system, which is farmed, it turns out to be very good for um, when you flood it for fish, and I'll say a little bit more about that. Uh, you go through the Cash Lindsay Slough Complex, which is the most natural part of the whole delta that's left. You go along the Sacramento River down past Rio Vista, and then into Susan Marsh. You connect all these by the Sacramento River. <clears throat> this creates, this is the place where you have the greatest possibility of creating habitat on a large scale that favors native fishes. And this means, of course, you're, you're, you're not going to invest as much money in the South Delta near all the pumps and things, which creates, obviously, some problems as well. Uh, but this is what I mean, mean when I talk about creating functional floodplains. Uh, there's been a lot of, these are some of the, the very innovative restoration projects that have been taking place in California in the last few years, recreating floodplains so that are benefits to native fish and wildlife. Uh, this happens, one here happens to be the Cosumnes River. But I also wanted to point out there's a, a book that came out that I'm co-author of uh, just about six months ago, which describes the floodplains around the world, especially in temperate environments, and uses California as an example of how you can manage floodplains in a way that benefits both people and fish and wildlife. I think that's one of the lessons I like to leave you with. Floodplains have a lot of future for restoration in California. And this shows you the Yolo Bypass. It's immense, built in the 1920s, a really wonderful system for protecting Sacramento from flooding. It's mostly farmland, but this farmland, if you put fish, if you flood it in the winter and put salmon on it, the salmon grow, get four times bigger in those floodplains than if they stayed in the river. That's an example from one of our studies right there. So if you want, if you're a baby salmon, you want to be on the floodplain. And that's what it was like historically. You remember that picture with the grizzly bears and so forth in it? There was in a system where you had immense floodplains where the salmon every year would go out onto those floodplains to feed before they went out to sea. And the bigger you are when you go out to sea, the better your survival rates are, the more the greater chance that you'll return <laughs> in future years. And he shows you Sacramento and the Yellow Bypass. Again, getting fish to spawn and getting juvenile salmon into this habitat is a great thing. It used to be we kept them out because I thought they all got stranded. But these fish are, in fact, pretty smart. They're evolved to get off of floodplains as the floodwaters recede. Uh, then we also get down to Susan Marsh. Uh, this is another, guess another advertisement for a book I'm co-author of on the future of Susan Marsh as the end point of this. North Delta Habitat Arc, because again, the, the marsh is a wonderful place. It's one of the very more, more natural places in the delta that has immense possibilities for, for fish and fisheries. It's over 400 square kilometers, so it's the largest brackish water marsh on the west coast of North America, and it's largely uh, unknown to most people in California, but it's an amazing place, a wonderful place to get out on. Uh, 
Well, what other actions will improve things for delta fishes? There are lots of them. I'm not going to go through them because each species has its own particular requirements. But we do have to uh, overall really create habitat for these fish one way or another, especially by providing water for them. And to do this, to do the appropriate job of planning, you have to take a multidisciplinary approach. Uh, the kind of work that I'm doing increasingly talking about these issues is because I work with a group of people who are, come from diverse fields, engineers, economists, geologists, and as myself as a biologist and with other biologists. And we produce documents like this uh, book, which is available for free online by the Public Policy Institute of California on envisioning futures for the Delta. What could the Delta be like in the future, and what can you do to make it into a better system? There's a lot of good thinking going on out there about what to do, but it takes a lot of courage to actually change the way we do things. So at this point, I'll finish off and ask you for questions. I hope we can get some discussion going. Great job.